Hello everybody, welcome to this week's A Disciples. I'm going to call this a special because in theory this should just simply be a tidbit because it's going to be released on Thursdays and that's typically when I release tidbits. However, I do believe that I am going to probably make this as a special because I may go over just the five or so minute time limit that I tend to give myself for these tidbits. And this is actually by request from one of my listeners. And it is, why has Jesus taken so long to return? It's been almost 2,000 years, right? So we're not really sure why in the world God would wait this long. But I think I'm going to maybe be able to shed a little bit of light as to why this may be the case. But I do have to also stipulate that the scripture doesn't necessarily give us a emphatic reason, okay? Now, I will say that there is some sort of biblical precedent to state that uh, Jesus did tell a parable in the Gospels, and specifically in Matthew chapter 25, that kind of intimated that he would be gone for a while. Um, it's the parable of the ten virgins. There's also the parable of the wicked servants, right? That their master went away on a really long journey, and there he was gone a lot longer than expected, and they began to act wickedly, get drunk, mistreat uh, the servants and whatnot. And then when the master of the house came back, he realized what they'd done, and he basically tore them to pieces and threw them out. So basically, Jesus did give us indicators whenever he was still walking the earth prior to his crucifixion that he would take a while to return. But here's my case, and this is largely just speculation, okay? But I think it's biblically sound, okay? So it all revolves around the Jewish people because, let's face it, the only reason that we as non-Jewish people or the Gentiles receive the gospel at all is because it was God trying to provoke Israel to jealousy, to provoke them to come to their true Messiah who had been promised in the Old Testament scriptures, okay? So all the way back in Deuteronomy 28, there was a promise of blessing if they obeyed the law, and there was a promise of curse if they disobeyed. So basically, you have a really long chapter. It's something like 70-some-odd verses. 1 through 15 is the promise of blessing, but verse 15 on down to roundabouts, I'm sorry, verse 68 is the promise of a curse from God onto the Jewish people if they disobeyed him, okay? Um, you can read that for yourself. It's a lot, it's really long to read. But then fast forward to two chapters after that to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I will read some of this. It says, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, likely either the blessing or the curse, and that's exactly what the text does say, the blessing or the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord God drives you. Now that's really interesting because he already said he would pretty much bless them if, they, if, he, uh, if the Israelites obeyed him, and he's already saying he's going to drive them out into the nations. Okay, it's rather interesting. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts of heaven, from there the Lord God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord God, the Lord your God rather, will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will prosper you 
and he will multiply you from your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And this is quite interesting. It goes on a little bit further, uh, verses 7 to 10, basically about how they will obey him. But what is the stipulation of obedience really at this point? Is it to just simply obey the law, being the uh, ceremonial law, sacrificial law, and um, the other parts of the law as well? Or is it a different way of obeying the Lord? You fast forward to Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 27. It says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. You fast forward again to the next chapter in Ezekiel chapter 37, and it's... uh, what is often called the dry bones prophecy, the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy. Some people believe that this is something that actually was fulfilled partially after the Jewish Holocaust and after the nation of Israel became a nation again by United Nations decree on May 14, 1948. So here's my speculation. Oh, and one more piece of scripture as well before I go into that. So in Daniel 9... I've said this a lot. If you've listened to my podcast, Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27 is a 77th prophecy. Long story short, we can account for 69 of these sevens. So 483 years we can account for. There remains one outstanding seven. And this prophecy was specifically for your people and your holy city. The audience the angel Gabriel is talking to is the prophet Daniel. Jesus called him a prophet in Matthew chapter 24. And I believe... The Olivet Discourse was an exposition, a further exposition, on Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. I did a podcast back on April 21st of 2022, where I believe that Jesus actually expounded upon it. So if you wanted to go back and listen to that, there's a little bit more detail there. But basically, the nation at that point had a countdown for when an anointed one would come, but he would be cut off and have nothing. And this whole prophecy was to accomplish six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Okay? So, realistically speaking, if you have your thinking caps on and you think about it, this is all New Covenant language. Okay? So, This 77's prophecy was to institute the new covenant, in my opinion, in my belief, and whatnot. So, what does this matter to our discussion today? Okay, so the Jewish people, by and large, back in the days of Jesus, rejected Jesus as Messiah. Because the prophets, or I'm sorry, the actual rabbis were teaching that basically Messiah would come and establish the kingdom that his, his son David had instituted and basically would be a rejuvenation of the kingdom of Israel such as it was under King David. Okay, That's what they were looking for. And to be fair, a lot of Old Testament prophecies did point to that fact. However, there is a Messianic prophecy, I believe, in Isaiah chapter 53 that would stipulate that Jesus would need to die for the sins of the people, that the Messiah would need to die for the sins of the people, that by his stripes we are healed. Right? That is the only way that we can have a perpetual sacrifice for our sins. Because I believe, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Uh, And Isaiah 9, 
verse 6, and also Daniel 7, 13 and 14, makes a strong case, in my opinion, that Messiah would be divine. He wouldn't just simply be a man, he would be divine as well. There are attributes within those scriptures, within the Old Testament, that seem to characterize the Messiah as a divine person. And it would be a person because in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, it says, One like a son of man approaching ancient of days, he will receive an everlasting kingdom that shall never pass away. Okay? So, Messiah isn't just going to simply be a man and that is all. Okay? So, I believe that basically, according to rabbinical tradition at that time, the Pharisees and Sadducees at the time of Jesus largely rejected Jesus as Messiah, okay? Not all of them did, not all of them did, uh, but quite a number of them actually rejected Jesus as Messiah. So as a result, when he was uh, leaving the temple, as recorded in Matthew 24, he had already basically lambasted everybody, uh, all the religious leaders. He says, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he left. And that's when the disciple says, what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay. I believe that he was talking again in exposition of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, because he is A, talking to a Jewish audience at that point, and B, characterizes what would happen whenever the abomination of desolation, which I believe to be a fulfillment of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where the Antichrist will actually go into the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. Okay, And this is significant too, because in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, there is basically the angel Gabriel says that you're going to rebuild the city and the temple, but the temple then will be destroyed again. So Jesus is talking about this very same thing in Matthew chapter 24. He's saying that not, not one stone will be on another. They will all be thrown down. Okay, And then he talks about the abomination of desolation as well. So Jesus had to be talking also about a future temple. I go through all that to underscore the idea and belief that I have that basically prophecy had in mind that there would be a third temple. There has to be. Because if Antichrist is going to go up into a temple, there has to be a temple to sit in and proclaim himself to be God. And even though in the eyes of God, the new covenant is in effect, it doesn't necessarily preclude the idea, in fact, that Satan, according to Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, and also Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 19, that Satan has always been trying to usurp the place of God and has been trying to put himself like the Most High. It doesn't matter necessarily that the New Covenant is in effect and Old Testament worship in the temple isn't necessarily a valid form of worship anymore towards God. What matters is is that the basically the 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 symbolism that will be utilized by the arch enemy of God that he's basically going to go up into a place supposedly dedicated to Yahweh of Israel and is going to proclaim himself to be God and that my friends I believe is the abomination of desolation the reason why Jesus has waited 2000 years to return in my opinion is because he is allowing time for the Jewish people to repent and he is also allowing time for them to even come back into the land and it has taken all this time and no other nation no other group of peoples anywhere in the world has ever in history been exiled and then returned and the jewish people have done it 
three times now. They did it the first time during the Babylonian captivity where they were uh, sent in uh, to live amongst the, the, the Babylonian Empire. And then they were also then under the Medo-Persian Empire. So they came back into the land. Then they got outed in 70 AD under the Roman occupation. And then fast forward to May 14, 1948, whenever they came back into the land again. Okay? The Jewish people have been outed and have now come back to the land that God gave their forefathers three times now. God likes numbers. He really likes his numbers. So three tends to be the number of perfection. Okay, so that's something to keep in mind as we're going through and we kind of ponder why in the world has, you know, God waited 2,000 years now and counting before he's returned. I believe that is a good part of the reason why, okay? And I think, too, it's like, you know, after 2,000 years, the world is not going to have any excuse whatsoever. They're going to have no excuse before God that you were not merciful enough, you didn't do enough for us, you didn't allow us to be able to come to you X, Y, and Z, and God's going to be able to look past over the last 2,000 years and it's going to be like, hey, I gave you two millennia to repent and you didn't. And let's face it, a lot of us only live anywhere from, say, 30 to, you know, 90 years, right, give or take. But given the fact that we have lived through that long period of time, and if you never repent and believe in Jesus Christ during that whole time, then I believe that you're going to have more than enough in the court of God, so to speak, to be able to convict you to send you to hell for eternity. Because the punishment fits the crime if you don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ, given the stay of execution the earth, planet earth has been under this entire time, there is more than enough evidence against you. Especially if you live in the West. And most of you listening to this podcast live in the Western world. Okay, You either live in Western Europe or you live in uh, the United States or in an area where you can somehow access a Bible. You're listening to this podcast. You can go to BibleGateway.com and you can get a free Bible reader. It has something like 150 translations of the Bible. I typically tend to use the New King James Version because a lot of people who listen to this podcast believe that the King James Version is the only version of the Bible, and I really don't want to get into all that argument. So I try to use something close that still is modern English that people can tend to understand. So that being said, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, you don't know what he did for you on the cross, I want you to listen to the next segment coming up in just a few seconds. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and your heart and everything through 
a process, if you will, to be able to embody what's already taken place in your heart. By simply saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life. And I want to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do. And your life will change. Your life will change, not necessarily materially, not necessarily in terms of the world, but your life will change as far as your relationship with God. And you can know for certain that you're saved. The Apostle John wrote that when he was pinning 1 John. He says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but that you can know. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, I have the links for the social networks that I am connected on in my bio for this podcast. I'm also available at Gmail at DisciplePOV, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.